Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy House, and I hope you are ready to ugly cry. We have Edie Carey on the podcast today. Before we get into exactly what emotions we will be deeply unearthing, I will uh, take a moment to thank our sponsors. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Winterbirds. Their new album, Shaker Songs, takes 18th and 19th century sacred texts from American shakers and puts it to all new progressive bluegrass compositions, exploring the poetry of this unique community. You can find Shaker Songs by Winterbirds on Bandcamp. All right, uh, hopefully you have had a moment to prepare for uh, Edie Carey because she is really incredible at tuning into the most vulnerable, intimate, and most secret human feelings in her songs. She was born and raised in suburban Boston, Dedham, Massachusetts, for those keeping track at home. She was raised by a poet, a therapist, and an English teacher, and her wistful writing definitely takes influences from all three, so we talk about that on the podcast. I mean, what is it like to have a therapist mother? Really, tell me. So Edie's very open about her uh, struggles in recent years uh, with infertility, and she addresses it most clearly through her music on the song These Things, where she explains like all of the lovely things that come along with having a child, like holding the child and loving the child. And like by the end of the song, you're just like a blubbering mess because she does it. She just like does this so well. Um, so in our conversation, she really gets into the detailed process of becoming the mother of two children. Her journey is uh, filled with ups and downs. She's extremely brave to share it on the podcast. And also, uh, Edie is hilarious. So we're going to have a real fun time here. I'm glad you could join us. Before we get into the conversation, let's take a listen to a clip of that song I was just talking about. Here's These Things from Edie Carey. The weight of you inside my arms Your heavy head across my heart Your tiny fingers pointing at the stars I never thought I'd have these things That fuzzy spot silky hair When I rock you slowly in your favorite chair I rarely ever sleep these days and I don't even care I never thought I'd 
he's one of those people who can play anything on guitar. He'll just hear it and he can produce it. And he's the one who really got me into singer-songwriter stuff. We'd go there for Christmas, and uh, he would take me to the Iron Horse to see, like, Maura O'Connell oh, and well. Sean Colvin and Petty Larkin. And yeah. So he was, like, my gateway person. I think my, it's not that my dad wouldn't have liked that stuff. He just didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes you have to hear from an external is, person. Is your uncle younger than your dad? No. He's, like, well, maybe a year or two younger but I think it's like if your parents show it to you you're like it's totally lame but if All you're right. my cool uncle who I just adored um he somehow was the one I could hear it from and I made it really cool and interesting to me oh, that's awesome yeah uh so like a western mass type of vibe yeah totally yeah, totally, totally. Great. and we still bond over music all the time oh, I love cool. that he knows all the people whose music I love too so the, your relationship with your dad mm -hmm. is pretty special, mm -hmm. and there's that song where you kind of chronicle, mm. like, talking to him. Mm -hmm. It's called If I Start to Cry, and every time I try to describe it to somebody, I definitely start to cry. <laughs> um, you're essentially, like, asking your dad, like, every question you've mm -hmm. ever wanted to ask him. Mm -hmm. Is that a true story? It is. It It's a very true story. It was a really hard conversation. I I think... And what you were at my concert the other night, and I don't know, I've just done three shows in a row, so I can't remember if, if I sang it. Um, but um, I think that when you're a kid and your parents get divorced and you're so little, you don't... How old were you? I was... Well, they separated when I was four, and they got divorced when I was five. But, you know, I was old enough to have language, obviously, but you don't have emotional language. So I think that you kind of, like, fill in and create this mythology about what happened. And my parents... To their credit, I mean, they were, like, amongst the first people to get divorced. You know, I had one friend whose parents were divorced, and then mine did. And then, and of course, then everybody else's seemed to get divorced <laughs> later. But they handled it really well. Like, I mean, it was very contentious, I think, now that I know more about what happened. But they still managed to never badmouth each other, uh, even though I could feel. And kids are intuitive. Totally. You know, you know, yeah. my dad's voice would change when my mom would call, and I would know that it was she that was calling but I think um, she would sort of explain things that had happened back then, but not in a way that condemned him. She just sort of explained her experience. And I think my dad was so afraid of saying bad things that he didn't say anything at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that you just fill in the blanks. And then you make up these stories that probably are based not really in truth at all. So when I was in my 20s, and obviously, you know, living on my own and doing music, I just sort of felt like, is our whole relationship going to be like me calling on Sunday to check in and talking for a few minutes and not really getting into emotional stuff? And I think it was 2002 where I, we were up in Maine together and my, we have a little sort of little farmhouse we go to and nobody was around. There's usually a million people around. And I was like, this is my opportunity. <laughs> it's so hard to break that wall because yeah, normally yeah. they're like, what do you want for dinner? Like, you want to go down yeah. to the beach? Like, there's, it's just fun. And I was like, I have some questions I need to ask you. Because I sort of felt like for us to have this new iteration of a grown-up relationship, mm -hmm. we had to kind of go there. It was the hardest conversation I've ever had, probably equally so for him in a lot of ways. Um, he was just wonderful. He really heard what I asked, and he answered me very honestly, and which at times was difficult, but very helpful, ultimately. Mm. And then I felt like I was able to kind of be like, okay, like, not that that pain ever totally goes away, but it, I just suddenly was like, I felt balanced. Like, yeah. I knew my mom's experience, and I didn't know his, and I wanted to give him a chance to tell wow. me what happened. So it was good. I'm interested in your relationship to therapy since your mm -hmm. mom is a therapist. Yeah. So I have a, a couple friends whose parents are therapists, mm -hmm. and they seem like 
very emotionally advanced. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Um, <laughs> yes, or more messed up than other people. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah, sometimes like, at the same time. It's either one extreme or another. Yeah. Like, did you feel like talking to your mom was like talking to a therapist? And like, have you mm. done therapy? Yes. I mean, definitely on and off over the years I have. But my mom, she's been sober for 40 years, which I can share. She's very open about it with everybody. Um and she is that person for everybody. She just sort of is the de facto therapist support for so many people and has been, you know, that person for me for sure from very early on. I never felt like she was trying to, like, fix me or or analyze me. I just always felt like I could tell her absolutely anything and that it was safe. And, I'm yeah, I'm very grateful for that. And when I did need to go to therapy, she made it such a, like, normal and not weird thing, and I was really grateful for that. Connecting with people seems to be, like, one of your favorite things. Like, it people is. people want to talk to you, and you really want to talk to people. And they it's do. like you want to take the time to talk to each person that comes up to you yeah. after the show and mm-hmm. ask them questions. Um, what Can you go a little deeper into mm. what that exchange is like for you? Mm. Um, and also, you know, do you ever struggle with boundaries? Um, I, I feel like I've I mean I've learned to have better boundaries, but I have to say most of the people that come to my shows tend to be pretty like sane and normal and I don't know I mean most folk fans tend to be fairly low key and yeah. have fairly good boundaries. Of course, there are exceptions. I don't know. I my father is we make we have a joke about this in my family. My my father is very solicitous and asks people a million questions about themselves. We call it aggressively friendly. <laughs> And uh, I definitely inherited that. And I I don't know whether that's a way to deflect from having to talk about yourself. But, I mean, I, I love to share things. Like, that's not – I don't think it's that. I love stories. I'm a songwriter for a reason, I suppose. Um, but that just seems to be the way of the Carey family especially. Everybody loves stories. My uncle George, who passed away a couple years ago, my dad's older brother, was a professor at UMass, and he taught folklore – and I remember, I mean, he told stories like nobody else. And my dad can do the same thing. Um, but sitting around the table and connecting and asking people questions and finding out, you know, little tiny, little stories or old family stories or what happened to them at the bank that day. I just like, I just find it fascinating. I remember being a kid with all the grown-ups talking to each other and just like sitting there and listening. I never found it boring. I loved it. And I think I inherited that interest in other people. I think it feeds you. Yeah. I'm always amazed when I meet people have no ability to ask anyone other questions. It's like sometimes I hang out with people. I'm like, well, I had a great interaction, but literally I don't think they asked one question about me the entire time, which is fine because I'm interested in people. Yeah. But it's some I some people do not have the art. A lot of people don't have the art of dialogue. Don't you find that to yes. be the case? And I feel like they're missing out because there are people who are quiet, who have so many stories in them. And, like, if you can get them one-on-one, it's so fascinating to find out what their experience is. You know? Yeah. It's like such a missed opportunity, I think. Yeah. So I find it fascinating. Love it. Um, Okay. How did growing up in the 80s and like really leaning into the popular (laughs) culture at the time define you, shape your personality? Oh, my, like so profoundly. I was like so into the 80s, like cheesy pop music. Like I wanted to be Whitney Houston. I want, I mean, I loved like belty diva singers like i loved mariah carey she had my last name yeah hello yeah Yeah. you're related (laughs) do you think that helped develop your vocal style at all 
Like those I belters? Mean, yeah, probably. Although I didn't really like belt that much until more recently. I like I always sang really high and like sort of pr- pretty. I used like my head voice a lot. And my producer, Evan Brubaker, was like, I think you actually have like a deep, rich, strong voice. Like you're going to make you write all the songs for this record with no capo. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not doing that. <laughs> that He's makes like, you, if the capo would make you sing higher. Yeah, like if you move the capo up the neck, it makes it, it just changes the key higher right. and higher and higher. Um, and he was like, let's move it down all, almost all the way off or completely off. And then let's oh. carve out that lower part of your register. Like I think you're an alto. He took your binky away. He totally did. And I was so pissed. <laughs> and it actually hurt my voice for a while because I didn't know how, like if you sing really high, you know to use a lot of breath to support those high notes. But if you sing low, you feel like almost you have to like slump your body into a C and not really make any sound. But it's the opposite. You actually need so much power behind it to sing those low notes. They're hard. So I was pissed at the time. But now I'm glad I get to use this whole part of my voice I didn't know I had. And so, so cool. then I started belting more. But yeah, 80s, I made up like cheesy dance routines to Madonna and Cyndi Lauper and forced my parents to watch them. I loved that. It was so fun. I still love cheesy pop. I listen to it all the time. Um, So you had plans to be a doctor. Yes. Is that true? Yes. I mean, here's here's what actually happened. I was a very, like, liberal arts kind of kid in high school, loved English and writing. But then I took chemistry because I had to. And then I really liked it, and I was actually good at it, whereas math was not – I was really terrible at math. But chemistry I really, really got. It made sense to me, and I loved it, and I loved biology. And I had this teacher at Nobles who – was like, you get this and you have people skills. I feel like you'd be a really good pediatrician or OB. And I loved babies. I took care of a lot of like newborns starting from when I was like 12. And I was like, yeah. And I think a teacher or somebody influential telling you that, you're like, maybe I could do that. <laughs> so um, I was really interested in that. And then I went to Barnard in New York City and took a lot of bio and chemistry. And I liked it. But a lot of the people that I was in classes with, I just didn't feel a great synergy with. There wasn't a lot of like warmth. You know, I got really, really sick for two weeks and missed classes and nobody would give me the notes. And I'm like, who? I wasn't I wasn't blowing off the class, <laughs> you know. And I was just like, is this the environment I really want to be in? And and then I started getting super into music, and then once that, I started learning how to play guitar. After that happened, I, nothing else was, was important to me. Right. Was that around the time that you kept going to the post-crypt coffee yes. house? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I went there freshman year, 1992, 93, 92, uh, and I saw Ani DeFranco play in a room, like, not much bigger <laughs> than the one yeah. we're in right now. It's a total um, fire hazard. But I saw her, and I just remember, you know that feeling when you just, like, have goosebumps and you're just, like, weeping. Not even because the song is sad, but because it just makes you feel so much. I went up to her afterwards, and I said something so dumb. Like, I don't, I cried through your whole show or something. <laughs> she looked at me like I was crazy. But it just ignited something in me. And after that, I just kind of was never the same. Wow. Um, also, Italy played a pretty big role for it did. music. Mm-hmm. Um, it did. You taught yourself guitar? I did. I taught myself guitar at the end of my freshman year. Um, And I think seeing Ani and I actually saw Ani and um, Alice Paul and Lisa Loeb all in the Postscript Coffee House in 1992. And I was like, okay, because I had always written like short stories or little poems or whatever. I loved writing. Writing came really naturally to me and I loved to sing, but I didn't play an instrument. I had no way to kind of like jam those things together. And so when I, and I didn't really, I knew about singer-songwriters through my uncle, but I'd never seen people like 
who seemed sort of like my age-ish. Right. You saw yourself in them. I was like, maybe if I had a tool that I could do that with, like I would, if I wanted to make music, I had to wait for like my, you know, acapella group to show up or the band to play or someone to play guitar. So seeing them with their acoustic guitar, I was like, okay, well, maybe the money that's going to my voice lessons, because I was taking classical voice, I could take that and put it towards guitar, buying a guitar and teaching myself. So that happened when I was like 19. And then I went to study in Italy for a year. And you were playing yeah. on the streets of I was. Italy. Yeah, it was horrible. I hated it. Yeah. So but I made myself do it. Yeah, it, it sounds like terrifying it was um, terrifying but it but it sounds like something that you made yourself do and it boosted your confidence and quieted yeah. quieted nerves it did so could you feel yourself getting like more and more comfortable like what was that experience like mm. of overcoming the fear um I think it was like I don't know it's funny it was the first time I felt like I'd had like a true discipline for something that I didn't want to do you know if you're into something you're just automatically drawn to it mm -hmm. it wasn't that I didn't love playing music because I did but standing up in front of people, like, vulnerably, like, hi, I'm standing here in the corner awkwardly asking you to listen to me. I, I was like, why am I compelling? My I did it every Tuesday afternoon in the main piazza in Bologna where I lived. I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, I couldn't understand because I, I would, like, I literally have hives, like, all over <laughs> my chest. Oh, no. And I'd be like, okay, it's Tuesday. <laughs> but I felt like it was like a boot camp. And it felt so good that I was like, you know, because I took boys for years. I would never practice because you could kind of wing it. I had a pretty good ear and I would show up to my lessons and they'd be like, well, you clearly didn't really practice, but you could kind of wing it. So good for you. But maybe you could practice for once. And suddenly when I started playing guitar, and I was in Italy and had a lot of time because you only go to class for like an hour or so a day. I was disciplined about something and I that felt so good. So I was like, this is my this is me learning how to do something that makes me uncomfortable. And the more I do it, the easier it's going to get and the better it's going to get. And maybe eventually it will be fun. The fact that I have so much fun on stage now is amazing to me because I really dreaded it very profoundly when I was younger. Uh, I really like your guitar playing. Um, I was watching you play the other night, mm -hmm. thinking like, "Oh man, Edie's like a pretty sick guitar player." Like, God, that's it's <laughs> hilarious that you say that. Thank you for saying that. Like you, mm. you have a particular style that just mm. like meshes so mm. well. Like your guitar playing is like as emotional mm. as your vocal delivery. Mm. So Thank tell you. me how you view your guitar playing. I mean, I'm very critical of it still. <laughs> um, I feel like you know your voice is so integrated into who you are and guitar is still always feel like it's a little bit out here and I'm trying to pull it towards myself but um it's funny because I'm actually learning how to play piano now in my mid-40s which is so humbling but then it makes guitar feel so awesome I'm like <laughs> oh I don't even have to look at my hands this is great um I'm so grateful for guitar I feel like it, it obviously gives me such a great tool to do what I want to do but Obviously, you know, like I had this guy open for me at this private show last name last night. His name is R. D. King, and he's an unbelievable sort of like progressive modern fingerstyle guitarist. And it was so such emotional music without words, and just I I was like, great, I can't play after this guy. Oh my God, he was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I've got to get you his music. He was really good. Um, and so there are times I feel totally like out of my depth. But then I look at somebody like Patty Griffin one of my favorite songwriters on the planet. She's a solid guitar player, but she's not virtuosic. She's not doing runs up and down the neck. But who cares? Because the minute <laughs> she plays a D chord, it sounds like nobody else's D chord, and it's like the most profound, beautiful, heartfelt thing in the world. 
And once I sort of saw that in the writers that I love, I mean, John Prine isn't playing great, amazing, unbelievable, mind-blowing riffs, and yet he's writing these songs that you just can't help but identify with. So I sort of let go of trying to feel fancy in my guitar playing. I'm just like, does it feel honest and do you believe it? Okay, I'm down. And that that's really how I feel about it now. So. Cool. So you have this incredible emotional quality that comes through your music so intensely. Like it's at the point where it seems like you make it a funny thing where you like guarantee people that they're going to ugly cry at your shows. <laughs> um, so how has the evolution of being so uh, forthcoming with your emotions mm. and sharing such vulnerability mm-hmm. through song, how has that been for you? Has it always been easy? I, th- I think I kind of can't really help it. Like I try to be more mysterious and I can't. I just have, like, no... I don't really have much of a filter, but I don't really want to. I'm kind of like, well... I mean, even still, certain songs, if I play them in a, you know, and I see somebody getting emotional in the audience, then I, too, sometimes can feel a little teary, and that's a little hard to rein in. I think it's a very fine line that you walk, because you want... Even when you're writing the song, you want it to go to the heart of what you're trying to say, but you can't fall into it, right? You have to be, like, just mm. north of the experience. Yes. So you can touch on it, but also be like kind of just past it because no one wants to hear you just like self-indulgently like wallowing in your crap, right? Like that's boring. It's not boring, <laughs> but it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly not a conscious choice. Like I am going to be vulnerable in this song. I think I just feel like if you're writing the song and you get really emotional in the middle of it, it probably means the truth of what you're saying mm-hmm. at least was touched upon and hopefully will resonate with someone. I don't I don't really see the point in a song that doesn't make you feel something, whether it's rage or sadness or joy. I mean, those are the people that I listen to, the ones that make me feel a whole mm-hmm. hell of a lot. A lot of people don't want to feel that way. I'm sure there are people that come to my shows like with their wives and they're like, great. I know you're ugly crying, but this doesn't do anything for me, you know, but that's okay because it does something for that other person. So I don't know. I don't know how to not be vulnerable. I mean, I'm like that in my regular life. Like, I don't like small talk. That's not really my jam. I find Mm -hmm. it really exhausting. So when I meet people, this is sort of a weird thing to say, but when I lived in Chicago, I went through infertility for years. I ran a support group for three years. And the women that I met there, I would have just met them. They walk into my house to talk about a baby that they lost, to talk about trying to have a baby, to talk about all the drugs they're on. So I've I've never met this person. They walk into my house and we all sit there and we like cry and laugh together. It's an amazing thing to interact with people that way immediately from the very beginning. So when I moved to Colorado Springs, I was like, I feel like everybody I meet, I'm having these like, oh, so like the weather here is really amazing. And it was all small talk. Mm -hmm. And Matt was like, maybe you should start a support group here just so you can like get through the bullshit and get like straight to the real conversation. I don't, I don't love that. So I certainly shows up in my songwriting and how I connect Mm. with people. So New York City has been a major player in your life. Yeah. What's your relationship like with that city? Um... Now it's just, you know, every so often that I'm there, but I, man, I just always will feel this like live wire connection with it. I was, I went to college there and then stayed there for six years after that. I lived in Fort Greene and Fort Greene was not snazzy and it was just an amazing kind of growth space. All the friends that I made there at the open mics, like Steve Tannen from the Weepies and Teddy Goldstein and Ann Heaton and, um, 
Amy Spees and all those people, we were all hanging out in a big crew in a time where none of us, we weren't married and we all were playing music and that's all we were doing every night. It was like magic and I will never forget that time. It was really, really was there important any to me. busking in New York or just venues? Yeah, people, I mean, people certainly did. I did on occasion. When I got out of college, I got a job. I, so I spoke Italian, um, like a, a lot of people in New York do, and miraculously got a job, even though I was like a, you know, Irish girl from Boston. I got a job using my Italian. So I was working in a magazine during the day, and then I would go to open mics at night, or I'd have a show at night, you know, mm-hmm. like at the bitter end or something. So I had that little window between my job uh, and then on the way to the gig. I would go and busk in the subway um, for, like, 20 minutes, and that was, like, going to be my warm-up for my gig. Oh, so cool. Yeah, and I mean, I would make, like, t- you know, 2 or $3 in, like, 15 <laughs> minutes or something. And, like, of course, the subway comes through. It's so loud. You can't, it's so hard to do it without a sound system. But I, w- I was, like, hearkening back to just a few years before when I had done it in Italy. I never really did it in Cambridge. I don't know why That's so I never weird. did. I know. I mean, I mean I, there's still time. You could do it today. I'm going to start. Yeah. I know. Maybe today. It's like pouring I know. out in February. Yeah, it seems Good. like a nice day to be outside. <laughs> it's pouring, by the way. Um, so I, I didn't do it much there. I, I think also eventually they made you get a license, and I was like, I, don't, I ain't got time for that. Oh, and yeah. at that point, I was yeah, starting yeah. to play a lot more. I was coming up here and playing in, like, Connecticut and then, like, mm-hmm. slowly started touring further out. Um, so... Okay, is it? It's all right to get into infertility. Yes, absolutely. You struggled with infertility. You mm-hmm. have two young children. Yes, two and six. Two and six. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a long journey to get there. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind sharing, like, mm-hmm. what that path was like and mm-hmm. how it affected your songwriting and your career. Yes. Um. It. I sort of feel like it was like an island I went to for like six years. Um. I did keep playing music through that time, and I was still touring. Um, but I honestly feel like, I mean, my daughter's two and a half now. I feel like I'm certainly kind of out of the bubble and I have been touring again since she was five months old, but pretty, pretty much like, I feel like I'm just kind of landing back on earth. I know that sounds silly because I've been a mom now for six years, but I don't know. I mean, having children obviously is very overwhelming and wonderful, but, and time consuming. So that's, you know, been my life, but, um, I never expected it was going to be what it was. I mean, I got, I started trying, I got married at 35 and I was like, okay, I'm 35, which is, you know, getting into older for having kids, but it, there was no indication I was going to have a hard time getting pregnant. But then I had a crazy health crisis on tour where I nearly bled to death. Um, not to be dramatic, but I did. Um, and they saved my life. Um, which was great, um, but they were like, you basically have no blood flow to your uterus now, so I don't know if you're going to be able to have a baby. Like, there might not be any way for a baby to implant in your uterus. So go see a doctor. I'd been married for four months when this crisis kind of happened, and I was like, okay. <laughs> so then I we just started, they were like, you don't have to do IVF necessarily right away, but start trying to get pregnant. So it basically was like a full-time job. I had to plan my tours around my ovulation schedule. It was so ridiculous. Anybody who's gone through IVF or any infertility or miscarriages, they know that it becomes your whole life. It becomes very obsessive. There's a movie called Private Life, which is on Netflix, which I highly recommend, with Katherine Hahn. And it's a perfect, and it's about all of this stuff. And it was like the most perfect depiction of it. I was like, this is almost too close for comfort. Wow. Anyway, it took, 
years, um, I I won um, an IVF cycle at a raffle. I kind of love how that I story. Had my son. <laughs> Wait, can you can you tell this story a little bit because yeah. Matt actually had Matt to... actually won it. Yes. Yeah. So um, I went to a support group, the one that I eventually took over. Um, I went to it for like no, I wasn't even like interested in talking about my infertility. I just had heard that it increased your chances of success because it reduced your stress. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just checking off all the things I have to do to try to get pregnant. <laughs> Um, and I had been told I needed IVF, but I didn't. We didn't have coverage for it, so I went to the group and I found it really helpful. And I loved the women that I met there, and the woman who hosted it knew I was the only one there who didn't have coverage for in and for in vitro. In Illinois, it's covered if you have a job, like where insurance is written there. But I was self-employed, so she's like, "You should go to this conference. They're giving away an IVF cycle, which for those who don't know, it costs about sixteen thousand um, dollars." And, of course, you have no guarantee it's going to work or you're going to have a baby at the end of it. Um, like one round. One round, yeah. And so that's sort of the process and the medication is about sixteen grand. So Matt and I were just planning to just pay for it with a credit card. We were like, this is – we want to have a kid and it will be the best money we ever spend. And then I heard that they were giving this thing away at this conference. And it was called, like, A Family of My Own, like, fertility <laughs> conference at, like, a hotel in Glenview, <laughs> Illinois. But I was away that weekend. I couldn't go. So I was like, honey, do you mind going to the conference, which is going to be 99.99% women? <laughs> you will be the only man. You there. will be the only man. Um, <laughs> and he was like, heck, that's going to potentially save us, you know, 16 grand. Sure. So my husband is very strategic. He's incredibly logical. He like, thinks things through. He's like a great chess player. He's always thinking about the next move. That is so not my brain. So it's very good I was not there. <laughs> but he noticed that the woman who was going to be – it was just like a box. It was like a bag with tickets in it and that were – it was pretty full already. And he noticed she had very long curated nails with like, like bejeweled and bedazzled nails. And he was like, she's not going to want to dig down deep because she'll mess up her nails. So – I should wait till the last possible minute to oh buy the ticket. <laughs> I would never think that. I'd be like, that's not fair. You shouldn't do that. And he was like, heck no, I'm going to win this baby. So he waited until like five <laughs> minutes before the drawing. And we were like on the phone trying to decide how many people, like how many tickets to buy. I think we bought like 40 or something. They were like 10 bucks a pop. We were like, what the heck? Let's go for it. I think our families like pitched in and bought tickets. Oh. It was really nice. And it was right around my birthday. I was like, that's all I want for my birthday is like buy us some tickets oh. for this thing. So then he waited at the last minute, and then he handed her the tickets or went to hand them to her, thinking she's going to take them and put them in. She's like, oh, you can just put them in yourself. So we just, like, sprinkled them lightly over the top. Oh, my God. And so she, like, barely stirred them. She was just like, Meh, and then she just, like, picked the one off the top. And that became Luca. <laughs> oh, kind my of God. Amazing. <laughs> so I felt really bad. It was funny, actually, when I run, ran my support group later, when I took it over, there were people, I told that story on occasion in the group, and people were like, I was at that thing. Like, they were, like, mad oh, because no. I, and I, so I stopped telling that story because I kept meeting people who had been at the thing. Anyway, so it was well, kind thank of Thank you for telling it. Yeah, that's such a good story. Matt really nailed it. He did used an approach that never would have occurred to me. Wow. That's I'm gonna I'm I feel like at one point in my life I'm gonna call you and be like can you hand the phone to Matt I know I need some help with a problem I know <laughs> seriously he is he is that is honestly his greatest skill set he's a city planner and he has to do a lot of problem solving and I honestly think that's it works in so many different scenarios Wow I just sort of get panicked and overwhelmed which is good to it's good to be married to somebody like that Is there anything else you'd want to share about the Yeah well the, so that? I well so I had Luca 
in 2012. And then I had embryos left over from my IVF. And I was like, this is going to be great. I'm just going to put an embryo if I want to have another child. And I did. And none of that, none of them worked. And I had, I did have a miscarriage, which was pretty, it was everything they say. It was really Mm -hmm. hard. It's kind of a zombie for a little while. And um, at that point we had fertility coverage because Matt had a different job. And um, so I had all of a sudden all the IVF I could want, like four IVFs covered per year completely. Um, And then my eggs were just really terrible. So my doctor was like, well, we could just keep doing IVF. And like, and we did, we did more. And none of my embryos would just, they just kept arresting. They they grow for five days and then you're supposed to put it back. And they would arrest always on day five. So I'd get to this place of hope, like this is going to work. All I need is one good one. And then they would just all die. So she said, we can keep doing this, but you seem pretty emotionally exhausted. And I was like, you're not wrong. She said, or you could use an egg donor and have a baby like tomorrow. She's like, I just think you have bad eggs. I think Luca was this wonderful fluke. And I think honestly, you probably wouldn't have even gotten pregnant at 25. And I was like, okay, well, that's kind of hard to hear, but it was actually super helpful. It felt like as soon as she said that, I thought I would feel devastated to lose Mm. my genetic connection. I was just like, I'm done. Yes, I want good news. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. So you go onto a website and it's like dating and you like find a gorgeous young person with robust ovaries. And it's amazing. I found this woman who I like read her profile and I just was like, I love her. She's amazing. She looks nothing like me. She's the same height, but she was a beautiful writer and that was really important to me. Mm. And then I picked I picked this person. Her name is quote Maggie. I'll never meet her probably. Yeah. But Emmy can meet her. My daughter can meet her when she's 18 if she wants to reach out to her. So it was amazing because I went from like always like I the phone would ring and I'd have PTSD because there was always bad news. It was right, always bad right, news. Right. And then suddenly they'd be like, she did great. We got 35 eggs. We have 10 beautiful embryos. Like, it's amazing. And then I got pregnant and I was actually when I got the phone call that I was pregnant because you go and take your blood test in the morning. I was at breakfast in Chicago with Natalia Zuckerman, <laughs> Susan Werner, and Ancha Dufkat. And I was like, you guys, the phone call is going to come while we're sitting here. I'm like, I need you to distract me. Those are all like amazing, amazing singer-songwriters. Song yeah. Yes. <laughs> and they, they were like the three most, because Susan is, I mean, they're all hilarious, but yeah. Susan is particularly hilarious. And she was making me pee my pants laughing. And then the phone call came and I went and talked to my doctor and she was like, not only are you pregnant, you were like real pregnant. Like my numbers were just over the top. And I was like, great. Now I'm having like the embryo split and now I'm having triplets, (laughs) but no, it was one healthy baby. And so, yeah, I'm very grateful that chapter of my life is done. I'm so grateful I have my kids, but man, it took a lot out of me. I'm very grateful to be kind of, letting go of it yeah you know it brought a lot of great stuff into my life too but it was hard yeah yeah Yeah, I always uh, think about that like oh I went through this really hard thing it brought a lot of great things into my life yeah it also was just really hard just hard yeah like it depletes it depletes a lot of your energy you know and of course now I have kids which is wonderful and they're awesome like I I it's my favorite job I've ever had is being their mom but it's also at the end of the day I'm like I am a dead person having a two-year-old at 44 is it's no joke. It's yeah. no joke. <laughs> yeah. And I have to work out a lot to keep out to keep up with her. So the other night at the house concert mm-hmm. I got to go to, you were talking about being a parent mm-hmm. and you still feel infertile. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that and how you reckon with that feeling? Yeah, I just I do. I mean I see it's I feel like such a weirdo. Like I still see I mean, I was pregnant 
well, I was pregnant three times, but I had two babies and I, um, I see pregnant bellies and I still feel this like deep, deep jealousy, which is so weird. It's not like I didn't experience it, but the other women in my group I talk to have to say they have the same thing. Is it kind yeah. of like, it might be different. I've yeah. not experienced what you yeah. have experienced, but I've definitely experienced mm-hmm. like imposter syndrome. Yes. Yes. Oh, I think it's absolutely, I think so many parents must feel that way where you're like, wait, I'm the person who has to make the decision here. I'm the person yeah. you call when you're sick. I'm the person who like has to be the final word. Okay. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> yeah. I definitely feel that. But I, I yeah, I just think. I I think specifically infertility just makes you feel like you're not valid. Like had had I not had all these scientific tools at my I don't know, had I not had IVF, would I have adopted? Would I have never like 50 years ago before IVF was there, those people just would have had to make peace with that feeling. And I never had to. Like I mm. had this very deep deep need to have a child and then I kept thinking do I really need to have another child like why am I putting myself through this again but I had a deep feeling again it was like what am I going to do if I have to try to fold this feeling up and put it away I'm going to kind of like grieve that for the rest of my life and Mm. luckily after she was born I didn't have it anymore I don't know I it changes you very profoundly so I feel like yes I'm a mom but I still feel like I'm not a real mom I still feel that way wow I know, isn't that? Yeah. And I feel like I'm a really good mom. It's not that I don't. I just, because I couldn't just, like, make out with my husband and, like, make a baby like normal people. You know, I saw the second I was pregnant, I could see everything so early. It's, like, too much information. It takes away a lot of the magic, mm. you know, for sure, of that process. But then, I don't know, I sort of think of it like a, a wedding and a marriage. You know, a wedding is a party, but that's really not the important part, really. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it happens. Yeah. You get the kid, and then you start for real. Will you, you know? share this story with mm-hmm. your kids when they're, like, old enough to understand it? I actually already do. Um, because of Emmy being from an egg donor, I, you know, like a lot of people who use who have um, adopted, you know, they want that story to be sort of woven seamlessly into their child's history. Mm-hmm. So I've talked about it from the very beginning. Of course, Emmy's still so little, but she's just getting old enough to really start to understand things more where I can really explain things to her. So I have little, like, books I bought on Amazon that, like, talk about the egg donor process in a kid kind of way. Makes me so mad because those books are such specialty books. It's like it's like a pamphlet, you know, and it's like $25 <laughs> because you ha- there are not that many people who need those books. Yeah. Um, but like Luca knows the story and he's six and he literally on the middle, <laughs> the middle of a plane ride, I think it was this summer, maybe flying back from Boston to Colorado. He said very loudly, so mom, was I your last good egg? And I was like, thanks. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I have dead ovaries. It's nice to meet you. It was, I mean, I had to laugh cause it was, hilarious. it was such a sincere question. <laughs> So he really knows, and I'm reading the books to Emmy, and he actually reads now, so he'll read the books to Emmy. So I just want, I never want there to be a time where she's like, wait, what? I'm, I know I was in your belly, but I'm not related to you. So I, I try to explain it in kid terms to them. Yeah, I wonder if that will have like a really profound effect on them and how they, like their relationship to you and Matt. Like growing yeah, up, they're I, like we're like this is special that we, we're they've here. really wanted us. Yeah, I, I mean, I tell them that all the time. Yeah, I'm like we really, 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 really wanted you, and these are the things we had to do. Yeah, I focused so much on the egg donor story with Luca that I realized one day I'd never really told him the IVF story, 
And so I I actually never told him the raffle. I, he's probably totally – I mean, I could totally tell him that now. He'd probably think it was hilarious. He's a raffle prize. <laughs> You're a raffle baby. We were joking. We could name him Raphael. <laughs> Raffaele. Because I speak Italian. I'm like – but I'm like, no, he's going to get beat up. We cannot name him that. But we named him Luca because I love the name. But also we call him Lucky, which sort of sounds like lucky. Like the, no. So that's sweet. So, yeah, I'm very open about it with them. The Sarah Sample album, mm-hmm. Till the Morning, you mm-hmm. made a lullaby record after yeah. you had Luca. You mm-hmm. were approached by uh, Sarah Sample, mm-hmm. and you called it the most fun record to produce. Oh, my God. Best time I've ever had in the studio, hands what, down. Yeah, what made it so fun? Well, Sarah is um, such a great friend of mine as well, and we just like laugh like idiots all the time. We have such a great time. So that was just wonderful. But we worked with this guy. Scott Wiley, who makes all of her records. And I've always loved his production style. Her records just sound so incredible, like effortlessly so. Tons of space and just the vocals are always incredible. So it was a no-brainer that we were going to work with him. Um, And we just, the three of us had so much fun together in the studio. But he's just one of those producers who's so low-key. I mean, he's thinking all the time, but he never makes you feel like that he's stressing about how we're going to approach a song. You just feel like he's like, Let's just, you know, be open to what happens and just kind of see. And he lets musicians come in and just do what they do best. And then he manages to make it this, like, beautiful, connected soup of amazingness. I don't know. It was just an effortless record. I think also a lot of it was because I was making a record with somebody else where you don't feel like it's all on you. And it was just the joy of singing together, Mm. which we already had. Yeah. It was funny, though. When we went to make that record, we were like, we've only ever sung live together. You know, like, what if we don't sound good? You know, it's often so much of the live singing with your friends is, like, about the vibe, and it's just, like, this ephemeral moment, and it's yeah. great, and and the energy and the connection and the camaraderie. Um, and I know, I already knew I loved Sarah's boy, voice, but we were like, we've never, like, sung intimately close harmonies on tape. Like, what is this going to sound like? And then, then it just was, we were lucky. It just worked out magically. Our voices are very different, but they blended really well. So That's great. It was awesome. I, we were going to do it again, for sure. Oh, cool. Yeah. So now that you're a parent, you mm-hmm. have two young children, mm-hmm. but you are still touring mm-hmm. and still making music mm-hmm. and independently. Yeah. It, which is, it's like you have a third child. Your first child a seems bit. to be your career. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you balance that? And like, oh, what's your tour schedule like now? Um, well, I have a really amazing husband who's super supportive and never ever complains that I go away once a month for like you know four to seven days which is great I met him on tour so he never complained because he knew who I was when he met me (laughs) Um, but he is really I mean it's a lot it's a lot to be by yourself and when he's not home it's really hard for me so I know what he does um, and what he's dealing with right as we speak Um, and my mom lives in Colorado so she moved from California and, and lives in the next town over oh that's great so she takes care of them during the day so that is amazing that makes it possible i wouldn't be able to do it otherwise absolutely um but i mean i also am contributing financially so it's not you know it's not just a joy ride for sure um and that feels really good to me i like being my own financial person that really feels good um so the balance is difficult i mean i get up really early every morning i go to bed around 9 30 and i get a like 4.30 or 5 every morning um, because I like to start the day having completed something and I don't have a lot of time alone. So 
Emmy is in school now, my daughter, um, a couple times a week. So I do have Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I have like these three-hour chunks of time, and I drop her off at school. I drive so fast home, and I sit down at the piano, and I play music for like an hour. I'll get my guitar out and play. And then there's a whole lot of emailing and booking and all of that kind of stuff. I don't – I used to have an agent. I used to have a manager. There kind of is no point in that when you're only playing like three or four shows a month, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm figuring it out, the balance there. I guess there is no such thing as balance, but Mm -hmm. I honestly feel like this is like my ideal. I love being home with my kids. I love that I'm part of their everyday. I mean, obviously it's exhausting, but it's great exhausting too. And, but I also love knowing that I get to go do what I love. It feeds me so profoundly and in such a different way. I feel like I am truly very, very lucky that I get to still do it the way that I want to. And what's nice is when you play so few shows, all of them are good. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to leave home otherwise. Like, I don't want to get on an airplane and fly somewhere else. It's going to be financially satisfying or emotionally satisfying or both. And so I can just be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to Florida for five days and I get to see some friends and have uninterrupted conversation and then make some money and then go home and be with my family. I'm, I love what I get to do right now. It kind of feels better than what I was doing before where I was playing all the time and doing a lot of gigs that weren't making me feel mm. that happy. So it, I, I, I can't complain. I can't complain at all. Great. All right, Edie, this has been awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So I love hanging out in the closet with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really love that when she says when you play so few shows, all your shows are good. It's quite a ringing endorsement to check out an Edie Carey show. She does travel around um, the U.S. pretty regularly, so you can check. I think that she hits up her spots at least once a year and definitely a really joyful performer to watch. Thanks to Edie for talking to us and just being so open and honest with, um, with her answers definitely uh, one of my favorite musicians and one of my favorite people to see and talk to. I want to thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is supported by Tina and Her Pony. If you like fresh takes on traditional music, you might like Tina and Her Pony. Follow them on Spotify or at Tina and Her Pony. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy, music by Alex Stanton of the Pittsburgh band Townspeople. Lindsay Myers is the business manager of Basic Folk. I'm Cindy House. I am the host and the brains of the operation. Let's be honest. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, bye.